The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian. If you wanna learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, becoming a patient, we have brand new telehealth patient options that are just now open. And we have tons of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Listeners of The Art of Being Well, I have a brand new book that's for pre-order right now. It's my fourth book. It's called Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fuel Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. Out of all my books, and I love each one of them, and they all for different people at different seasons of their health journey, But this one, from a personal writing and educational standpoint, I was so excited to write it and even more excited for it to get out into the world. And we're giving away tons of free stuff when you pre-order Gut Feelings right now. We're giving away an access to a mastermind with me and Dr. Caroline Leaf and Dr. Daniel Amen and Dr. Nicole Perra, the holistic psychologist. All of those brilliant people have been on the podcast. They're friends of mine, colleagues of mine. Dr. Nicola Perra wrote the foreword of the book, and we're giving away lots of free healthy stuff as well when you pre-order. So if you want to learn more about all the gut feelings, goodness, it's all at drwillcole.com. And we are also giving away free signed books whenever you leave a review on Apple Podcasts for The Art of Being Well. Tell us what you love about the show. And every month, no matter when you listen to this episode, My team and I will be randomly picking winners every single month. So all you have to do is you can leave your Apple podcast review and do it two different ways. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple podcast review itself, or you can take a screenshot of your Apple podcast review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every month I'll be going through the messages with my team on Instagram, as well as the Apple podcast reviews and 
themselves. I read every single one of them and we'll be reaching out to you. I'll ask which book you want me to sign and I'll send it out to you. All right, let's get to today's guest. Dear friend of mine, brilliant man doing brilliant things. His name is Jeff Knobs. Jeff is the co-founder and CEO of Zero Acre Farms, a food company replacing destructive vegetable oils with healthier, more sustainable oils and fats made by fermentation. You're to learn all about the science about this today. With over 15 years and counting of experience in the health and nutrition space, Jeff has co-founded several startups to offer better quality ingredients and nutrition-forward food to people and communities, including the fast casual restaurant chain that he owns called Catava. We also talk about that. In 2020, after seeing a drastic decrease in accessibility to fresh food, Jeff co-founded Help Kitchen to connect food insecure individuals with partner restaurants for a free meal via SMS. Let's get right to it. This is Jeff Knobs, Art of Being Well. Jeff, my friend, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun. People are going to learn so much. I want to geek out with you about all things food and nutrition science vegetable oils, sort of the myths around vegetable oils and the different oils, I guess, we use as cooking as a whole, that people, maybe they're not even thinking about it, but the oils we use for cooking or the oils when you're out eating at a restaurant or the oils that's in a lot of packaged foods can really be messing up our health. So we're going to shed light on this important topic. But I want to first talk from a professional level. I've never asked you this before. I guess I know loosely, but the details, I want, I want the the tea on this. How did you get into the space of studying and being innovative around oils? Yeah. Oil of all things, right? It's kind of a joke now. I say I'm in the oil business, which is, you know, as a kid, it's not like astronaut or engineer or president or in the oil business, but that's where I found myself. And, you know, it, it started for me when I kind of try to connect the dots looking backwards. I was always really interested in nutrition for whatever reason. I remember in middle school, looking at the amount of sugar on the back of drinks and just deciding I'm not going to have sugar drinks anymore because sugar is bad for you. And I, I thought nutrition was, you know, sort of black and white like that. And, and you know, fa- fast forward a decade or so, and I had some I lost family members to various chronic diseases and, you know, wanted to figure out why that happened and, and how I could maybe help prevent it happening to others and, you know, kept coming back to nutrition. And so as I was looking into nutrition, you know, reading molecular biology textbooks and biochemistry textbooks, and really trying to understand what happens when we put different foods in our bodies, oils, seed oils, omega-6 fats kept coming to the forefront. And I was particularly interested in fat because no one seemed to agree what was, what was a good fat and what was a bad fat, especially 10, 15 years ago. Nutrition is already such a controversial topic and fat is sort of the epicenter of the nutrition controversy. So I really wanted to figure it out on my own kept coming back to these seed oils, vegetable oils as a, as a primary culprit and thought, Hey, someone should do something about this. And you know, after several years of not much happening there, um, and the prevalence of seed oils only getting greater and greater, I sort of realized that, that I might need to be that person that does something about it. And so researched all sorts of different ways that we could try and get soybean oil and corn oil and canola oil out of our food system. And that led to looking at olive oil, avocado oil, scaling up regenerative beef agriculture for, you know, beef tallow 
And for one reason or another, none of these were, you know, viable solutions to, to actually have a dent in soybean oil, you know, big soybean oil, essentially, which led to a totally different way of producing the, the same, you know, healthy fats that are, that are in these other oils and fats, but in a very different way that's more scalable, you know, long-term, we think more, more economical, and, and then with a much smaller environmental footprint and, and a super healthy fat profile. So we, you know, we think this could, could do big things. We want to get our what we're doing out there more. But, but yeah, it really all started with this, how do we solve this chronic disease epidemic? And how do we solve this massive impact that, that food is having on our environment? 100%. All right. So you mentioned the oils there, but maybe we should go back. So I want people to like think about, okay, what am I having for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Let's turn around the boxes and the labels and read, read the labels. What are the oils they should be looking at the food in their home and asking what foods at restaurants their food is cooked in? What are the mm-hmm. industrial seed oils that you're talking about that we want to be considering to limit or avoid? Yeah, great question. It's a good place to start. So I'll tell you the specifics. And these are the oils that are high in omega-6 fats, specifically linoleic acid. So this isn't you know some subjective ranking of oils to avoid because I don't like them or the, <laughs> the, the sound of them or or even you know how they're produced. Rather, it's the oils that are that are most damaging because of the types of fats they contain. And so those can, those include safflower oil, sunflower oil, cottonseed oil, corn oil, canola oil, soybean oil. And, and, you know, there, there are others like palm oil, coconut oil, avocado oil, olive oil, which are fruit oils, as opposed to seed oils. While those can have a big negative environmental impact, they're, they're much healthier from a, you know, from a human health standpoint. So it's, Oils from seeds and grains <clears throat> like soy, corn, rapeseed, sunflower, safflower, cottonseed, those are the big problems from a health standpoint. Got it. Love that list for people to know. So then it's implication in chronic disease. And that's something that, you know, it's been part of my conversation with patients for 13 years at this point. And it's certainly a conversation online, on the podcast. But we haven't gone in depth on the podcast, which is that what this episode's about for us to really dig deep and get granular on this topic. But in the inflammation spectrum, when I wrote that book, it's one of the inflammatory core four was industrial seed oils because it's I see it messing up people's health. But how does it mess up our health? Like, can you explain to people like what are the things that are going on when people are consuming too much of these things? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know. I could go on a monologue for the next four hours, probably answering that question. So I'll, I'll try to keep it more concise. But there are a number of ways to to answer the question: Why are seed oils bad? From you know trends in consumption and comparing that to trends in chronic disease to what randomized controlled trials say. Oh man, I could uh, I could spend the next four hours in a monologue answering that question. So I'll I'll try to be concise and distill it down here. There are a number of ways we can answer the question, why are seed oils bad for us? You know, we could look at trends in consumption compared to trends in chronic disease prevalence. We could look at the populations or people who aren't sick and look at what they eat compared to the people who are sick and look at what, you know, the, the spoiler alert is that tend, the populations that are really sick tend to eat more seed oils. We could look at observational studies. We could look at randomized controlled trials. We could use common sense and we can go down any of these rabbit holes if you'd like. But mechanistically, what's actually happening when we consume these oils is that we're, we're consuming evolutionarily unprecedented, unprecedented amounts of a certain type of fat, you know, like we talked about, omega-6 uh, linoleic acid. And for most of our evolution, 
we consumed a, a tiny percentage of our diet as this specific type of fat. You know, may, maybe one, two, three, maybe four of our calories were as linoleic acid or omega six fat. And these seed oils contain upwards of you know twenty five, upwards of seventy five percent of seed oils are linoleic acid. So obviously, way way more than than we've eaten before. And it's because we refine things like corn kernels and soybeans and rape seeds that you know we, you'd have to eat some impossibly large amount of like corn kernels to get the amount of corn oil in, a, in like a few tablespoons. And so as a result, very large amount of omega six fat. And you know, in and of itself, just because we haven't done something in our evolution doesn't by definition mean it's bad. But in this case, unfortunately, it looks like it does. And omega six fats are particularly unstable. So, you know, the reason that uh, fried foods are bad, for example, is because they're fried in vegetable oils and those vegetable oils, those fats break down in the fryer into a bunch of toxic compounds that we end up consuming. Those cause all sorts of issues. The, the same thing happens in our body with these unstable fats, where when we eat them, they break down into toxic compounds. Um, you know, I'll rattle off a few acronyms, but this, you know, your audience doesn't necessarily need to remember them. Um, HNE for hydroxynonanol is one of the really bad guys. There's nine hode, 13 hode. There's a class called Oxlams, oxidized linoleic acid metabolites that researchers have identified. You know, they need, they need an acronym to describe all these breakdown products of linoleic acid. And it's like when we eat this stuff, it's like a grenade exploding into shrapnel in, in our bodies, ultimately causing oxidative stress, inflammation, and, and even DNA damage. So as a result, it has. The, the excess consumption of seed oils and thereby omega-6 fats has been implicated in everything from heart disease to dementia, Alzheimer's to, to cancers because it's creating that inflammation, creating oxidative stress. You know, we don't have the antioxidants to combat all that inflammation and free radical exposure. And as a result, all sorts of bad things happen in our body. There are some other reasons maybe for, you know, why, why these oils and why linoleic acid making up all of our cells can be so problematic, but it seems like a big part of it is, is what that linoleic acid breaks down into. Fascinating. And you said people don't have to memorize this to write these down, but I know most of the listeners of the podcast just wrote that down and memorized it. These are super like erudite, nerdy people. For a long time, I've been using a humidifier for my skin, for my sleep, and just overall wellness. The problem with that is that traditional models are notorious for being moldy and really difficult to clean, impossible to maintain. And honestly, even from just like a superficial aesthetic standpoint, <laughs> kind of ugly. That's where the canopy humidifier comes in. It's recommended by leading dermatologists. The canopy humidifier is a completely reimagined humidifier that elevates your home for the ultimate in skincare and wellness benefits. Canopy's unique features and design make it the easiest, cleanest humidifier out there. It's truly Healthy Skin's best kept secret. The Canopy humidifier has clean, no mist moisture that effortlessly hydrates your skin to combat dryness, dullness, and fine lines and wrinkles. Its hassle-free technology inhibits mold growth and the parts go right into the dishwasher to keep it really clean. It's that easy. All you have to do is go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy humidifier purchase today with Canopy's filter subscription. Even better, use code WILLCOLE at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. 
Again, that's G-E-T-C-A-N-O-P-Y dot C-O. Get Canopy C-O to save $25 and then use code WillCole at checkout to get an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Your skin will thank you. Your sleep will thank you. I put it right beside my bed. Get Canopy.co. Next question that came to mind is, okay, the sheer consumption of these oils. Like, isn't it one of the top consumed foods in the world? How, and if it is, like, how did it get so popular? This is the scary part is it used to be a non-existent or minuscule part of our diet. And now it's about it being, you know, vegetable oil. Um, the seed oils, vegetable oils are about 20% of our daily calories. And that that's in the U S globally, vegetable oils are, they are the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat. So, you know, rice and wheat grain staples that, you know, feed, feed many people, the overconsumption of grains is of course its own issue. But vegetable oils is, you know, third on the list after, after rice and wheat. And unlike rice and wheat, which at least provide, you know, some nutrition, seed oils are, are devoid of nutrition. You know, they, they do not contain micronutrients outside of maybe some trace vitamin E, which simply, you know, is attempts to be an antioxidant to protect all that uh, oxidative stress that the seed oils are going to cause, but do, doesn't quite do enough, but they don't contain micronutrients. So, you know, th- there's just no reason to consume them. They're reading as, as I've nerded out on this over the course of the last decade or so, you know, I've read a lot of reports on the subject and over the last hundred years, since the globalization era began there, they represent the largest increase in, in source of calories in our diets. Sadly, they're still the fastest growing subsector of global agriculture. So they're not going, well, you know, unless we do something about it, well, they're not going anywhere. Um, you know, if, if anything, we're, we're consuming more and more of them. Got it. And I mean, can you explain, because a lot of times people will ask me, but as a consumer, I'm thinking walking through the grocery store, buying something online, still these oils are oftentimes marketed or preached as heart healthy oils. Many of them are, right? So can you talk about the observational studies there and why as a culture we kind of deify some of these oils when in fact, Mm -hmm they're contributing to this epidemic of chronic inflammation. Yeah, absolutely. And sadly, you know, when you look at the dietary guidelines, they still say we're not eating enough, even though our consumption of these oils has gone up, you know, like 1600% soybean oil in particular has gone up like a thousand X in the last hundred years. Uh, But the dietary guidelines still say we need to be guzzling more corn oil and canola oil. And the reason we're sick, we're so sick is because we're still not consuming enough, which of course doesn't make any sense because when we were, you know, healthy hundred years ago, we didn't consume really any of these oils. And this all started when President Eisenhower had a heart attack and, and that kind of put heart disease on the national stage. And everyone wanted to know why is this happening? You know, why are people getting heart attacks? Why is this increasingly becoming the number one cause of death in the country? And the, the finger was pointed at cholesterol. And so then, you know, researchers looked at what foods increased cholesterol. And they found that saturated fat rose cholesterol levels. So thus, you know, then th- these were early days simplified. We didn't really understand that there were different types of cholesterol, for example. And, and, and so anything that rose cholesterol, you know, was deemed bad. More was, of course, revealed on the subject over the, the ensuing decades, like different types of cholesterol. 
But you know, long story short, the reason vegetable oils were were deemed healthy or were you know preached as as healthy was because they they lowered LDL levels. They lowered you know LDL cholesterol levels, and at the time, it was thought that high LDL cholesterol was the cause of heart disease. As time has gone on, we've seen, of course, you know, one that there are different types of cholesterol, whether it's LDL or, or HDL, but. We've also found that it's not just LDL that causes heart disease in particular, but rather it's oxidized LDL. And the, the researchers, we, they were uh, Brown and Goldstein. They, they were the ones who discovered the, the LDL receptor. And you know they thought they were going to, and they, they did win a Nobel Prize for, uh, on the subject when they, when they combined, combined LDL with macrophages, which are what ultimately kind of Hoover up that LDL and then cause arterial plaque, nothing happened. You're like, what the heck? More LDL is supposed to mean, you know, all this plaque being formed. It wasn't until it was that LDL was modified, as they called it, that that plaque started forming. And later, uh, other researchers would find that the modification of that LDL was, was that LDL oxidizing. And what causes LDL to oxidize is linoleic acid, you know, so going right back to the, the seed oils issue. But I mean, this this has only really come out, you know, in the in the last decade or so, um, decade or two, that you know the role of oxidized LDL. But for decades, anything that lowered LDL cholesterol was deemed healthy. Vegetable oils lowered LDL cholesterol. Unfortunately, when you look at randomized controlled trials, while they do lower LDL cholesterol, which you know, let's remember that's just a biomarker, that's not any sort of health outcome. They do lower LDL cholesterol, but they also increase all-cause mortality. So you know. What I like to say is, would you rather have high LDL cholesterol and be alive or low LDL cholesterol and be in a grave? And I think most people would prefer to be alive. That biomarker in and of itself, you know, in a vacuum may not mean much, but, you know, in the, in the context of a very high seed oil diet, it may make sense for sure to lower LDL cholesterol if a lot of that cholesterol is getting oxidized by seed oils. So heart disease is what really put seed oils, vegetable oils in the spotlight as heart healthy because of their LDL lowering effects. But a lot of the other research on, you know, on the, the more negative effects of their consumption has largely been ignored. Right. It's cherry picking of data, which is oftentimes what people do when they're pushing a narrative and lots of money involved and special interests. But there, and the reality is, I mean, this is a sidebar, like putting my clinical hat on with patients. That's one of the reasons why we run a nuclear magnetic, magnetic resonance or NMR test, we look at the full context of the subfractionation of these particles. And I tell, I'm telling you, people that are focusing on high sugar, high refined carbs and industrial seed oils like this are more prone to these small dense LDL particles, which are these, like you said, these oxidized inflamed sort of like rusted BB bullets is how I think <laughs> of them. They have the potential to sort of tear through arterial walls and are the problem. So it's the inflammation that damages the particles that carry cholesterol or oxidize them, as you just said. That's the problem. And other inflammatory markers like high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which these will also contribute to it, and high homocysteine levels from poor methylation. And then, of, of course, glucose, A1C, triglycerides, and like just a full comprehensive metabolic panel. But this is really important for people to, to realize the connection here. So I, I'm I've heard you talk before about the connection between these industrial seed oils and cravings and like people getting the munchies. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of people out there and if they're not the ones, they know someone in their life that's going through some, they're, they have these insatiable cravings, they're hangry. Could industrial seed oils be a 
part of why they have the the munchies? They they could be, and he, you know, he, here's what the the science says. So we we've all heard of THC from you know from from marijuana. THC is a cannabinoid. THC is really good at at making us hungry. So much so that it's actually a prescribed drug for you know folks who need to eat more. So, and it's an approved FDA solution to that. And the way THC works is it activates receptors called CB1, CB1 receptors. And activating CB1 receptors stimulates appetite. THC is really good at that. But THC isn't the only compound that can activate CB1 receptors. THC is a cannabinoid, like I said. There are also endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids are inside our body. And I won't go into the I won't throw more acronyms at the audience over and over, but they're 2AG and AEA if anyone wants to research these endocannabinoids. And these endocannabinoids also activate CB1 to cause hunger. They're made in, inside of our body and they're only made from one source, omega-6 fat. That, that, is, that, that is the only source for these endocannabinoids. And so when we consume omega-6 fats from seed oils, some portion of those omega-6 fats are converted into these endocannabinoids. And these endocannabinoids trigger CB1 in the same way as THC. And there have been studies in rodents in particular, where you know one group consumes one type of oil, another group consumes another type of oil, with the, the primary difference being the, the amount of omega-6 fat. And the, the rodents who consume more linoleic acid, more omega-6 fat, put on significantly more weight. And it follows the same pattern would, w- that we would expect, which is they, you know, they're given access to a little rat buffet, and they they consume more when they, they consume more chow when when they have a higher linoleic acid diet and you know consumption of that extra chow leads to extra weight gain. What's really interesting is that endocannabinoid system is conserved across all mammals. So you know while while rodent studies aren't always relevant, they they could be in this case. And what's particularly scary is in a separate study they actually fed fish different amounts of linoleic acid, and the fish who consume more linoleic acid were then fed to one group of rodents. And then the fish that ate less linoleic acid were fed to another group of rodents. That was the only change in the rodents' diets. The rodents that ate the fish that ate the seed oils gained more weight. So this has implications for you know, even the meat we eat, whether it's chicken or pork or duck. You know, if that poultry or, or those pigs are fed grains, soy, corn, seed oils, you know, often the feed just has seed oils in it, you know, that, that could mean extra weight gain for us. And there are even, you know, there are a number of other examples showing that with weight loss drugs that use this same pathway, when the endocannabinoid system is blocked, those weight loss drugs don't have the same effect. So, so it's clearly, you know, it seems to be pivotal in the, in the role of the munchies eating too much weight gain and, and high linoleic seed oils, uh, they're not necessarily doing us any favors that they could actually be increasing our appetites and causing us to eat more, throwing off that sort of metabolic balance. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense mechanistically. So, I mean, it makes sense if anyone thinks for a moment that we are a part of nature, that what is bad for us is usually bad for the planet. And there are many examples of that. We've mainly largely been talking about the human health the detrimental human health impact. Can you talk about the environmental global health impact as well? Yeah. And this may be even more devastating. This all started for me personally from a health standpoint, but as you know, as I got more and more into food, I realized food could be a huge lever for all the issues we're facing on, on the environment side of things. 
And turns out that vegetable oils are also um, not doing any favors to our planet. So their vegetable oil crops are two of the top three causes of deforestation. And deforestation is one of the leading drivers of greenhouse gas emissions, climate change. And when you look at you know, the specific crops that emit the most greenhouse gases, four of the top five most greenhouse gas emitting crops are vegetable oil crops. We, we had talked earlier about how they're uh, about one fifth of all the calories we eat. That means we're using a lot of land to grow these vegetable oil crops. And again, it'd be one thing if we were destroying rainforests and ecosystems to grow foods that like, you know, doubled our intelligence or made us live for an extra 500 years or something like that. But to dedicate all this land and destroy the environment to grow foods that kill us is a process that, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And vegetable oil crops are especially bad and inefficient. So it's not, it's not just their, you know, their, their prevalence and how much we eat that, that leads to them taking up so much land. It's just not an efficient process to produce edible oils and fats. You know, you, you think about what, what actually happens in the case of something like rapeseed or safflower, or even a soybean. Some of that soybean is, is going to animal feed, and then a big portion is going to oil. So, you know, tear down an ecosystem, grow, grow a bunch of plants, you know, monocrop agriculture, and then rip the plant out and take its tiny little seed. If you've ever seen a rapeseed, it's, you know, it's not very big or a corn kernel or a you know, soybean or a sunflower seed. Take its tiny seed and press it for an even tinier amount of oil. So you can imagine an entire sunflower plant, flower, and all its little seeds. And each of those seeds, you know, they only contain across different plants, different seeds, five to maybe 25% oil. And, you know, you kind of toss out the rest of the plant and market that oil is healthy for humans. Maybe there's some meal left over that you feed to factory farm animals and call it a day. And, you know, and that's our, that's how most oil crop agriculture works today. Um, mm -hmm. And so as a result, globally, it's, it's something like an area of land the size of India that's, that's dedicated just to vegetable oil crops. Wow. And just for, to make the connection here, when you say rapeseed, that's, <laughs> that's corn, that's canola oil, correct? Yep, that, that's uh, the less flattering name for canola oil before it was rebranded. Yeah. Right, which is like Canada oil, right? That's like the, the origin of the name. Yeah, there's no canola plant. Nope, <laughs> canola. good luck finding that one. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's an acronym, Canadian Oil Low Acid, because okay. traditional rapeseed is very high in a type of acid, fatty acid called urusic acid, which is like acutely toxic, but new varietals of rapeseed were, were bred to produce less of this. And then hence the name canola. Yeah. Got it. And then he, we, the marketing of vegetable oil, like it sounds so nice, right? It's just someone had to squeeze some zucchini <laughs> a bottle. Like what actually is vegetable oil? Yeah, it's it's to your point. It's not zucchini or kale or you know artichoke <laughs> oil. Definitely, definitely not. So you know, broadly speaking, vegetable oil refers to any oil pressed or extracted directly from a crop. And then within the group of vegetable oil would be seed oils, which, like we talked about earlier, you know, are oils pressed or typically extracted using harsh chemical solvents from grains and seeds, like soy and rapeseed and sunflower, safflower, etc. It is brilliant branding, and it was actually done by Procter & Gamble way back in the day. The sort of origin story of you know, the popularization of vegetable oils with two, two brother-in-laws, Procter and Gamble, and they came together to create 
Crisco. That you know they they figured out how to remove the acute toxins in in cottonseed cottonseed oil, partially hydrogenated that oil to produce something that resembled lard, and marketed it as the clean, pure alternative to animal fats. And Crisco took off. You know that was that was um, a little bit after Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, the book all about you know factories and industrialization in the U.S. and the lack of purity and how dirty they were. So this pure white substance Crisco was was really popular. You know, it took us a hundred plus years to finally ban trans fats, but ooh, they went on a tear there for a while. You know, in, in the damage that they caused, and this Crisco brand was called a vegetable shortening. At the time, people didn't like the idea of oil from cotton, you know, cotton seeds, which they typically thought of like dresses, blouses, napkins, shirts when they thought of cotton. But vegetable shortening sounded really, you know, clean and great and pure. And at the time, there was actually no requirement to put an ingredient list on the back of products or any details. So there was this this era of basically huge brands that said, "Oh, don't worry, what's in the product? You know, just just trust us." And did a lot of kind of shady marketing around it. Um, and, and and that's what led to you know vegetable shortening. And then as soybean oil and corn oil and all the rest came out. They sort of were like, hmm, this vegetable shortening thing really worked well. Why don't we why don't we go with vegetable oil to describe this category of oil that would otherwise, you know, be animal feed or something or shouldn't have even been produced in the first place? And and it stuck. Fascinating history. I'm such a history nerd as well as a health nerd. So I I I loved every minute of that explanation. Hydration is so much more than just drinking water. This is something that I'm always talking to my patients about. That's also what Lauren Picasso, a lifelong endurance athlete, discovered as she struggled to stay hydrated no matter how much water she drank. Lauren founded Cure, a science-backed electrolyte drink mix to make hydration easy for everyone. A shocking 75% of Americans are chronically dehydrated, but science shows that staying hydrated often requires more than water alone. Without essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium, we can't replenish ourselves from everyday activities like exercise, travel, drinking alcohol, or being run down and maybe struggling with a health problem or digestive problem. I see a lot of people that aren't even absorbing things appropriately. And that's why making sure you're replenishing and nourishing your body with essential electrolytes is so important. Cure is a science-backed formula with plant-based ingredients, no added sugar, and four times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks. Cure is based on the World Health Organization's formula for oral rehydration solution, which has been proven to hydrate as effectively as an IV drip and two times faster than water alone. Cure uses clean ingredients like coconut water and pink Himalayan salt that are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and have no added sugar. It is also FSA and HSA eligible. Customers can use their Flex Spending account or their Health Savings account credit card on Cure's website on all products marked FSA and HSA eligible. Get 20% off your first order at curehydration.com with my code, Will Cole. Again, that's code Will Cole for 20% off your first order at curehydration.com. That's C-U-R-E-H-Y-D-R-A-T-I-O-N.com, curehydration.com. You talked earlier about these fruit oils, right? Things like olive oil, avocado oil, which as you said, there's nutritional benefits to that. These are healthy fats that 
can be a part of someone's diet, especially olives and avocados in their sort of whole food form. So, but you make the argument and the case for why olive oil, avocado oil may not be the most sustainable answer for our planet. So, and, and maybe even more than that. So can you explain why these alone aren't the answer? Yeah. And, and first of all, you know, extra virgin olive oil is not like the enemy or the reason that, you know, we're in this health and environmental crisis. That said, it's also not going to get us out of this crisis. And the, the issues with these fruit oils are one on the environmental side. So palm oil is what gets you know, most of the spotlight for being bad environmentally, primarily because of where it's grown. It only grows near the equator. And so, you know, that, that's the land that competes with biodiverse rainforests. And so palm oil, while, while actually being a very efficient oil crop, competes for land with orangutans and, and biodiver other biodiversity. And, and so it's easy for consumers to care about that. Plus, it's just so prevalent. Palm oil is the most, you know, the most prevalent vegetable oil in the world. Soybean oil is the most prevalent in the U.S. and, and is second most prevalent in the world. So it, it certainly makes a lot of headlines. But if we tried to replace palm oil with something like olive or avocado oil, we would use significantly, significantly more land and more water. Olive oil is unfortunately sort of like the 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 almond of the oil world. It, after nuts, it uses the most water per you know per kilogram of food of any crop out there. Avocado oil has all sorts of issues from a humanitarian standpoint of where it's grown in Mexico. It's driven by cartels, and you know outside of the environmental issue, typically or, or in particular the the water consumption of these oils and the fruits behind them as well as the land use, because olives, I should say, can they can be grown without water, you know, it's, it's, uh, or without irrigation. It's not like your, your Italian great-grandmother's olive tree that has been in her family for 50 years. That's not the problem. It's large-scale olive oil production, which requires irrigation, which is the huge majority of olive oils on the shelf today, because irrigation is a more economical way. Using irrigation allows for more economical olive oil, maybe sort of counterintuitively, Olives grow a lot faster and produce more oil when they're irrigated with water. And so farmers, you know, just irrigate the heck out of, out of olive, olive trees. It also leads to less bitterness. So you don't have over bitterness in, in olive oil. But, you know, certainly there, there are ways to, you know, like the backyard olive trees is not the problem either. And because these oils tend to demand a premium price tag, there's a lot of adulteration. So the sort of dirty secret in, in the CPG, consumer packaged good world, is a lot of products that use avocado oil unfortunately, they aren't really using avocado oil. And sometimes suppliers may just turn a, turn a blind eye. There's actually a study done by Selena Wong out of UC Davis that found 82% of avocado oils on the store shelf and purchased online are adulterated or rancid. And previous studies have, have found similar numbers for olive oil, though other studies have found those studies to not be true. So it's a little confusing. Yeah. And, and you know, to be clear, olive oil, avocado oil, certainly a better choice than, than soybean oil. But in my opinion, still not the still not the perfect cooking oil. You know, if if you could cook your food in any oil, olive oil, avocado oil, they still contain ten to twenty percent omega six fats. You know, something like a beef tallow or coconut oil are like two percent. Canola oil is 25 percent, and and so, so they still result in a lot of these you know toxic compounds that we had talked about earlier. That omega six still breaks down into those inflammatory toxins. So those are some of the issues, and you know some of the things we're trying to address with cultured oil. Absolutely. And another point that I'm always talking to patients about, and I want people on the podcast to hear this right now, why 
smoking point mm-hmm. and the sort of oxidative stability of an oil mm-hmm. and like when, like what they should be picking to cook with versus having as a, on a salad dressing, et cetera. Like what, why are those so important? So you hit the nail on the head. Those are the two variables that are most important when choosing a, a cooking oil in particular. You know, if you're not cooking, then smoke point is is not not so relevant, but oxidative stability still is. And so we'll break that down. So smoke point is the temperature at which the oil starts smoking, visibly smoking. That tends to get more attention actually than oxidative stability, but is less important. The the primary reason smoke point is important is because you don't want a smoky kitchen and your smoke alarm going off when you're you know searing a steak or, or cooking a stir fry. But when an oil starts smoking, there, there are other things happening in there. You know, carcinogens are being formed by the schmutz, for lack of a better word, the schmutz and oil technical, starting to burn up. Technical, Very technical word, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it marks the formation of some, some oxidation, you know, is, has, is definitely happening there. Oxidative stability is totally independent of smoke point and is largely a result of the fat profile of the, of the oil or fat. So oils that are high in polyunsaturated fats, like omega-6 fat, they tend to break down or oxidize quite easily. And oils that are high in saturated and monounsaturated fats tend to not break down easily. And so for cooking, you want to minimize the amount of omega-6 fat or, or, or omega-3 fat for, for that matter. So, so the oils and fats that are best for cooking are those that are absolutely lowest in, in omega-6. That would be things like animal fats, beef tallow in particular, butter, and, and then from an oil standpoint, coconut oil, lard and, and chicken fat are, I, I actually don't recommend cooking with those as much because, you know, like we talked about earlier, when pigs eat vegetable oils and, and you know, the, the grains and seeds they come from, their fat ends up being quite high in linoleic acid, this omega-6 fat, sometimes as high as, you know, like canola oil levels, which is unfortunate. Beef tallow doesn't have that problem because of the way that cows' stomachs work and um, enzymes in their stomach actually turn those omega-6 fats into other things, which is, which is pretty cool. And, and, you know, and they're eating mostly grass. But, but yeah, that, that same thing that happens in the frying pan is happening in our body. So you get, you get the double win when you get a very oxidatively stable oil is that it's not breaking down the frying pan and it's, it's more stable in your body. And that's important because these oils literally, you know, we literally are what we eat. And every cell in our body has this lipid bilayer. And that's made of the fats we eat, the lipids we eat. And, and that stays in our body for years. You know, I, I've, seen, I've seen different numbers on the half-life of oils in our, in our body, but it's, it's measured in years, you know, a couple of years. So that, that fried food binge you went on you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that weekend, th- those oils are sticking around for a while and, you know, and oxidizing and, and causing inflammation and causing free radical formation. Uh, so yeah, the, the more oxidatively stable an oil is the the better for a number of reasons. Uh, certainly. And just to, I mean, echo that, I mean, as you mentioned, all of our cells are encased with these phospholipid membranes. Our brain is 60% fat. Your immune system needs fat. Your skin needs fat. This, I mean, we, it's, as you said, you are what we eat, but just to like double down on that point. And I've seen, I can tell you clinically, I have seen people that go for, they'll eat an animal, like if they're, you know, an omnivore and they're having chicken or it's mainly with the chicken and the eggs on conventional eggs and chicken versus like a free range organic egg or chicken. The, the food sensitivities, it's not just the food itself. It's what that animal was fed. And that's a great point that you, you brought up. It's what we've done to these poor animals. 
Yep. So let's talk about, you've been talking about this ratio of omegas three, six and nine, these polyunsaturated fatty acids. You have brought a very innovative tool for us to bring into our life. And it's something called cultured oil. Many people don't know what it is. They're going to hear about it now. What, what is cultured oil? Cultured oil is our solution to this problem. Cultured oil is you know, what I've been spending the last several years of my life thinking about. Something's got to change. You know, vegetable oils, we're just eating more and more of them. And if other oils were the solution, then the problem would have been solved already because these other oils have been in existence for decades. But again, the problem's only getting worse. And, you know, for a while I thought I just need to go stand on the top of a mountain and like try to convince everyone to put down their soybean oil or to like not eat fried food or to stop putting dressing on their salads or like, okay, this is definitely not going to work. And, you know, it became clear that the, a path that could work is to actually bring something to market and, you know, make an option available that isn't just way healthier and way more sustainable than vegetable oils, but it's actually just a better oil. You know, better tasting, higher smoke point, better performing, longer shelf life, you know, something that chefs will love. And, and so we think that's what, that's what cultured oil is. That's what we've done with cultured oil. It's, you know, you, you'd asked about kind of omega-6s and ratios. It's the, the lowest omega-6 oil out there, less than 3% omega-6. You know, some batches have like one or 2%. So similar to beef tallow from a, from a omega-6 standpoint. And then we had also talked about olive and avocado oil, which are often touted as being healthy for their monounsaturated fat content, you know, anywhere from like 65 to 83% on the very high end monounsaturated fat. Cultured oil has 90 to 95% monounsaturated fat. You know, whether you're a vegan or a carnivore, everyone can kind of come together over monounsaturated fat, thankfully. Beef is actually, beef and pork are actually fairly high in monounsaturated fat too, about 50%. And then, and then a little bit of saturated fat as well to kind of round things out. It's the highest, the highest smoke point oil, you know, that, that we found out there. So I won't ramble on, but I, I, you know, the intention was that it would kind of check every box and, and stand a realistic chance of displacing all these other seed oils. Something that's better for us in the planet. Absolutely. It's displacing it. And it's also, you are an industry disruptor. I, I, without a doubt, do you, are you getting, I like, I love a little controversy. Do do you get, are you getting pushback? Because I think it's that means you're doing something right. I'm sure you're getting some pushback from the industry. We we are getting some pushback from the industry, and interestingly, we haven't received that pushback directly. It's it's sort of been back channel. You know, we've we've kind of heard through back channels through the grapevine that there there's a lot of an interesting mix of interest and concern. You know that that this could displace a. $240 billion industry, you know, we have, we have a long ways to go, of course, but, but yeah, you know, a lot of these other, other companies that are um, selling soybean oil and canola and all the rest, they're fat and happy. And something that's going to disrupt that would, you know, make them lose weight and be unhappy <laughs> uh, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yeah. Right. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> literally on the weight loss. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and you, I, I want to, highlight this point that cultured oil has a 90% smaller environmental footprint than vegetable oil, right? Yeah. So there's an LCA life cycle analysis, which is sort of like the gold standard determining a product's environmental footprint done on cultured oil. And uh, yeah, about 90%, this is compared to vegetable oil, about 90% smaller environmental footprint, which includes land use, water consumption, and greenhouse gas emissions. 
So some, somewhere between like 86 to 90% on, on each of those three. So yeah, you know, it, it, it's a big deal if, you know, every gram, pound and ton of soybean oil that we replace, you know, that's, that's literally saving trees, saving land, saving water, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And it's not a little better, you know, 90% or 10 times better is, is significant. And you know, e- even compared to some of the lower linoleic acid, lower omega-6 oils out there like avocado, which are, you know, c- can contain upwards of 20% omega-6, about 10x lower omega-6 content in cultured oil as well. So you know, it, if it were like 5% better or a little bit better, I just don't think that would be enough. You know, it's got to be like 10x significantly better. And thankfully it is. Love it. So I know two questions are coming up like that. I'm thinking, okay, people are going to be wanting. So I'm going to ask for them preemptively. Mm-hmm. What's it taste like when they're cooking with it, doing a stir fry, they're, they're, they're frying something up, stir frying something up. What's it taste like? And then we're using the term cultured oil because that's what it is. But what is it? Like, what is it of? Like, what are we culturing? What is cultured? Yeah, that that is definitely a question we should answer. So yeah, to to your first question, the taste is neutral. And so unlike, you know, the peppery, bitter, grassy taste of an extra virgin olive oil that you'd like dip some crusty bread in or something, you know, it's it's not a replacement for that because it's a, it's neutral taste. It's, it's also liquid, like a liquid oil. So it's not a replacement for lard or beef tallow or butter, you know, not a one, one replacement for those at all. It, it, it really is to replace the oil that you would otherwise use for high heat cooking. If you want a neutral taste, if you don't want your, your particular food, you're making to taste like olives or avocados or rancid soy or, or whatever. So yeah, Which very is neutral th- taste. I think for some people, rancid soy, it's like, yeah. Mm, yum. It's a f- <laughs> yum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so we, we've had, we've had customers say like, Oh, this is what eggs taste like. This is what my sauteed kale, like this is what kale actually tastes like as opposed to, you know, like the overwhelming taste of uh, that yummy rancid soy or, or even like butter or olive, which, you know, I mean, I use butter and olive oil as well in, in some applications, but, you know, your food ends up just tasting like the fat instead of the food. So, you know, it, it's been really interesting to hear feedback on that. And then what what is it? What is being cultured? So, you know, we called it cultured oil because there wasn't another word for it. It's like trying to come up with a word for beer or wine or cheese before you have that word. And you'd call it like, you know, cultured, cultured milk in it, you know, cultured fermented milk fat or something. Or I, I call beer cultured gluten juice. Ooh, yummy. Yeah. <laughs> Wheat juice. Wheat juice. Yeah. That okay. that's that's not too far off actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you in the case of beer, you ferment the sugars and grains and the, the those sugars are converted into ethanol and carbon dioxide to give it its alcohol content and carbonation. And that's yeah. beer. But no hey. one cares. They just call it beer. Yeah, exactly. So I hear, I get your point though. There's your, this is unprecedented. So what do you call it? I think it's very descriptive. So yeah, what, it's, yeah. So, so, so cultured oil is what we called it, you know, not animal fats, not vegetable oils, it's a different category of cultured oil. And it, it starts by, by fermenting sugar. So sugar cane is fermented and that, that very pure source of plant sugar is completely converted by this fermentation process into oil. So, you know, we were talking about beer. Beer is when through the process of fermentation, you know, barley sugars are converted into alcohol and CO2. In the case of cheese, milk sugars, or or in the case of yogurt, milk sugars are converted into lactic acid that gives yogurt its tang. You know, wine, grape sugars converted into alcohol. Yeah, cultured oil is sugarcane that's converted into oil. And what fermentation is, is a, a 
the process of a microbial community or, or a culture that's, that's doing the culturing. And so the specific culture, you know, not a sourdough culture, not a beer culture, but call it an oil culture, the specific culture behind cultured oil is really good, not at making alcohol or lactic acid, but making oil. So, you know, you can look under a microscope of what's happening with, with beer or with wine or with cheese or, or with cultured oil. And you'll, you'll literally see these, these microbes that, that are taking sugar and then filling up their cell with oil and, and that's cultured oil. And then, so like in the case of olive oil, you know, you have a, an olive with a, a bunch of oil that, that, that has filled up inside and it's, you know, pressed S- same with this, the, the culture consumes sugar, sugar cane converts it into oil. And then that culture is pressed to release the oil and that's cultured oil. Love it. The power of fermentation, the power of science and the power of nature, all kind of, that's the way I think of what you're doing. It's sort of all together, but, but just to be clear for people, it's, this is not sweet. The, the sugar is fermented, right? I mean, this is not going to be any, there's no grams of sugar in this. No, zero, zero residual sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like a cow's, you know, the, the way a cow's stomach chambers work in fermentation where the cow eats grass, but it's not like there's grass left in your steak or your milk. Yeah. You know, it's completely (laughs) fermented. Right. Right. And if there is grass in your beef, it's a problem. It's a problem, (laughs) guys. Talk to your local farmer. Yeah, talk to you. Exactly. I know you have to go soon, but I want to throw a few different questions at you. As you know, the podcast, it's called The Art of Being Well. This is your art of being well. This is Jeff Knobs, Art of Being Well. First question is, what is the worst tasting healthy food that you still eat because it's so freaking good for you and you know the science behind it, but it still tastes horrible? Oh yeah, good question. So I'm, I'm big on you know the antioxidants and polyphenols that are in small little tasty things, whether it's like wild blueberries or cilantro or cinnamon. There's some really good, interesting polyphenols in parsley, but I think I have like that genetic disposition where parsley tastes like dish soap, soap. to me. Yeah. So even like, you know, that, that little bit on the edge of a, a restaurant plate or something, or, or that little bit on a salad, I, I find myself cringing when I eat it, but I still do. That's a good answer. What are two supplements that for you personally have been the biggest game changers? Magnesium. You know, I don't know if it's like soil mineral depletion or something in my diet, but you know, that, that's one of the few supplements where I, I noticeably feel different. There are a lot of other supplements where I'm like, hopefully that did something and I'll, you know, th- that'll tack on an extra year or I'll, you know, I'll be 1% <laughs> more optimized. Um, but magnesium is one where when I don't supplement magnesium, I notice, you know, like foot cramps and, and, and things like that. The magnesium is one. The other is, I don't know if this counts, but uh, canned oysters. Oysters are just like such a nutritional powerhouse. They're actually the second most nutrient dense food behind liver. And I think they're pretty tasty, but it's not as easy to go out and like collect and shuck some oysters. Mm-hmm. So there, there's some companies now that have oysters, um, you know, that aren't in seed oils, which is always great. And so just like I can, you know, every couple of weeks and, and I get, it's like basically a nature's multivitamin. Love that. Nutrient density with food, food first. Food is your multivitamin. I love it. Yep. It's great. What's your favorite restaurant in the world? And when, you, when you're there, what do you eat? Well, I have a restaurant, so I'm definitely biased. Um, well, we have to give it a plug. So, I mean, you know, I, if, if you define favorite by eating the most often, then Catawba, <laughs> which is my restaurant in the Bay Area. Some of your listeners may actually know Catawba, the name. We're, we're named after an island in, off of Papua New Guinea, where researchers went and basically found zero traces of 
cancer or heart disease, other chronic diseases. Like they couldn't even find zits or cavities in, in these people because they ate, you know, that sort of like more traditional diet. And that's sort of what our menu is all about. So I mean, I gotta, I, I, I gotta give the nod to Katava here. <laughs> that's right. So what do you order when you're there? What's your favorite Katava dish? You know, I, I do the build your own just cause so I can like, you know, get into the weeds on which vegetable I want and what type of meat and which sauce I want. I get the, we, we have a hundred percent grass fed beef on the menu and the other animals are pasteurized. So I'll do a build your own with barbacoa, you know, s- s- slow cooked, um, some, some greens under that with, you know, I'll change up the veggies that, that come with that like broccoli, maybe sweet potatoes and there's this green, green goddess dressing that goes over the top. Love it, man. I have to go to Catawba, man. I, I've, I haven't been there, shamefully. Right. I, Next time you're in the Bay, I'll treat you. I, I, I'm never in the Bay, but I want to go. I'm going to make it a point to go. What's the last question I'm going to ask you? What's the weirdest wellness thing that you've done that you're willing to admit on a podcast? <laughs> that last part is probably key. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a disclaimer. Because I know my friends, I know they just do some weird crap, but they're not going to say it on a podcast. But but you could, you could be as controversial as you wanted. This is your time. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdest. I mean, um, among your audience, probably the stuff that, you know, my friends would think is weird. They'd just be like, oh yeah, I do that like every other Tuesday, of course. <laughs> exactly. It's relative. Every yeah. time. Yeah. Weirdest thing I do. You know, I, I've I, done. You may have just done it once. You may have just done it <laughs> once because it's so weird. Yeah, maybe, maybe I just like put it out of my memory because I was so embarrassed by it, but I'm having trouble coming up with like a super weird one. You know, what, what comes to mind is how weird I am about just like my sleep and diet in general, where, you know, it's like, it's not like the the fun party trick to be like, yeah, 8.30, I'm going to head home now so I can, you know, get eight hours before my meeting tomorrow morning. Yeah. But, you know, I find, find myself doing that and just, and prioritizing health and it's definitely, you know, that's definitely pretty weird. I 100% agree. And that's a good answer for sure. My friend, this has been fantastic. As always, catching up with you. What is, where can people go to learn more about Zero Acre? Tell us all the things. Where do they go? Yeah, they can go to zeroacre.com. Actually, we created a code, Will. So if they go to zeroacre.com slash Will Cole, they'll get free shipping on their first order of cultured oil if they want to give it a try. And I'd love to hear personally what what they think. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Knobs. I haven't tweeted in a while because running a business is a lot of work. And I have a blog, jeffknobs.com. But yeah, all things Zero Acre and a bunch of the studies that we've done. We've written white papers on the issues with seed oils at zeroacre.com slash blog. And we're on all the socials at Zero Acre Farms. Love it. So give us the the link one more more time. Zeroacre.com slash Will Cole. Zeroacre.com slash Will Cole. Amazing, man. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.
please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.